You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. The entire book is structured around that, right? So Machiavelli says that there are three parts of a conspiracy, the planning, the doing, and the aftermath, essentially, or before, during, and after. And he actually says that the after is the most dangerous part. Machiavelli is basically saying states can wage war, but a conspiracy is available to everyone. All right, I've had, I have on for the... 27th time, Ryan Holiday. Do Ryan, I have the record? I, I don't know. It's either you or Brian Koppelman or Tucker Max. Okay. Maybe AJ Jacobs. That's a couple people. Yeah, I'll take that. I have to, I, you know what? There's a lot of men. I have to have like a woman come on a bunch of times now. Um, What woman has come on more than once? Maria Konnikova? She's Amy great. Warren has come on twice. Who? Oh, Amy Warren's come on twice. Do you know that book? 13 Things uh, Intelligent People, or what's the book? 13? Mentally Strong People. Mentally Strong People Should okay. Not Do. It's a great book. Uh, anyway, Ryan. You know who you should have on who I just listened I just listened to her on Lance Armstrong's podcast? Vanessa Gregorius. She's was a she New York Times writer. She wrote a book about like uh, like consent. Uh, consent and sexual assault on college campuses. She's she she's the one in in my book, uh, w- one of the the phrase that they would describe Gawker is that they they had the rage of the creative underclass. She came up with that phrase. Hey, so Steve Cohen's in the audience here. Yeah. Steve, can we get her? Yeah, let's get her. On it. She's right for New York Magazine. Yeah, too. yeah, yeah. yeah. And, good, good suggestion, um, Ryan. What? Good suggestion, Ryan. Thank you. <laughs> Always good to have suggestions right in the middle of the podcast. <laughs> yeah. so, so the reason we have you on, and I feel like I say this every single po- podcast with you, is... A, you just wrote a book, which I say every single podcast with you because you're writing like a book or two a year. Second, I will also say this, which I've said every single time, which is this is the best book you've ever written, um, but it's very me. different. Yes. Uh, your other books like Ego is the Enemy, Obstacle is the Way, uh, and, and other books have been more kind of in that, um, I don't want to say, they're not quite business self-help, but they're in that stoicism category. You've really reawakened um kind of interest and kind of current and modern interest with your modernist view of the philosophy of stoicism. Mm-hmm. So I highly recommend those books. This book is not that, although there's elements of your your extreme knowledge in that area, plus you, in, in many other areas, there's there's elements of that in here, but this is an actual story. This is the first this story be narrative, you've written. Narrative nonfiction, yeah. I would say. Is that, like, like when I was writing it, I was thinking uh, like John Vallant or uh, Robert Curson or I was thinking like Robert Curson. Rich I Cohen. Was, I, w- I was thinking Rich Cohen. I wasn't thinking like a Malcolm Gladwell, right. who's who does narrative nonfiction, but with another umbrella around it. Say like outliers is a lot of stories, but there's the outlier yeah. component around. This is basically a story of one big conspiracy. But you have 
like like you know tentacles out to many other conspiracies and what does a conspiracy mean and what are conspirators and there's it's kind of a full circle effect kind of understanding it's an interesting look it's not just a story of one single conspiracy and we'll get to yeah. that story in a second it's it's what is the nature of conspiracy why do people do it what's the outcome what are the lessons learned yeah, I tried to make this singular conspiracy a way to sort of cuz I think it does represent this thing that humans have been doing since before Machiavelli, right? Like it's the you screwed me and now I'm going to ruin you or I think this king is a tyrant and I'm going to dethrone them or I have this idea that's controversial and I want to inject it into the cultural consciousness but I'm going to have to do it, you know, in secrecy, you know, like so. So to me, I think what the story is is a is a lens to sort of figure out how that's done and been always always been done. But I I happen to have access to what I think is one of the most surreal and unreal conspiracies ever. You you had unbelievable access to the main to all the players involved. You mentioned one small group that you didn't have access yeah. to, but that's okay. Um I want to talk about how you get that access and how you built up that trust. Um because I think this is going to be a significant direction for you in your in your writing, your ability to get this access in a way that you've never done before with prior books. But um uh, I'll just I'll outline the story really okay. quickly. I want to hear your version. Yeah. So so basically Peter Thiel who's a founder of PayPal, first investor in Facebook, founder of Palantir, billionaire. Um, Altature podcast guest. Yes, yes, he's one of the one of their early podcast guests, and I've I've talked to him since then as well. Um, master level chess player. Yes. So uh, I think our ratings are right about the almost exactly the wow. same, and um, I think very good guy. But anyway, in two thousand seven, he was uh, Gawker wrote a piece about him. Basically, outing him or saying he was gay, yes, and he took offense to that because he he wanted his private life to be private, which is a reasonable expectation, no matter what. And Gawker takes the opposite view, or took the opposite view, which is that free speech is free speech, no matter no matter what. And you refer to this later on in in the book, but no matter what level of compassion is involved, that's not relevant. Free speech is more relevant than compassion, right? And um, so. Peter Thiel realized correctly he couldn't fight this fight. That yes. wasn't the fight to fight. It's not illegal to out someone in most circumstances. Right. It's actually very hard in general. If someone writes something bad about you, because many times someone has written something bad about me and I've spoken to lawyers, it's actually very difficult to do something about it. You just have to take it. Yeah. yeah. There's lots of things you have to prove. To, you have to prove either sometimes how malicious an intent, or you have to approve, prove some sort of financial damages, which is very difficult. That you're not a public figure, yeah, you know, things like that. So yeah. there's very a lot of ambiguity in the law, yeah. even though you know supposedly there are li- libel laws and defamation laws. It's actually really a gray area. So Peter Thiel decided, you know what, I this person Nick Denton, CEO of Gawker, and Gawker itself has made an enemy. Yeah. And I'm a billionaire. So yeah. essentially a billionaire has infinite resources. Mm-hmm. Nothing is too expensive for a billionaire unless they want to buy some, a company for 5 billion. Yeah. You can't if you have right. 1 billion. Essentially you can buy anything else yeah. and lots of it. And so Peter Thiel said, "Okay, they made an enemy. I'm going to take a step back and figure this out." And there there's other things that happen, you know, P- con- co-conspirators joined in and pitched him ideas and stuff, but I'm going to stick yeah. to the broader outline. Okay. Which is that finally he found a vehicle by which he could 
bring down his enemy. And so he secretly funded the lawsuit between Hulk Hogan and Gawker. Gawker published uh, a sex tape. An illegally recorded sex tape of Hulk Hogan having sex with his best friend's wife. <laughs> right. And by the way, I had I didn't know this was happening at the time. I think it was like 2012 or 2013. I had dinner with Bubba the Love Sponge. Really? Hulk Hogan. And it was a weird dinner. I'll we tell had you had dinner about. with both of them? No, just Bubba. Oh, okay. Yeah. And um, uh, and Bubba's lawyer, yeah. incidentally. But um, but they didn't mention this case. Okay. Uh, so... so uh, uh, so Peter, T- so so Gawk- Gawker published this sex tape. Uh, it was illegally recorded. Hulk Hogan did not know it. He was really devastated by it. He asked them to take it down. They refused because, again, for them, free speech was more important than compassion he or says, Hulk's I appeal, life. I appeal to you as a human being. Please take this down. Which, of course, and they, they don't say, do. Yeah. How many pages did it get that first week? I don't know the first week, but it ultimately does seven and a half million views. Right, which is significant revenues for them. They 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 subsist on advertising. They're you know uh, Nick Denton ran it for not only Gawker but uh, all all this umbrella yeah. websites that that were focused on gossip and re- revelation and so on. Uh, and so Hulk sues, and again, there's lots of people in the middle yeah. and co-conspirators, and that's what the book's about in part. But Peter Thiel secretly is able to fund this lawsuit, and there's lots of reasons he needs to do it in secret. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Hulk Hogan wins uh, this enormous $141 million. $141 million, which basically puts Gawker into bankruptcy and Nick Denton into financial stress and other people into financial stress. None of them had any idea Peter Thiel was behind this. They're, they were thinking, well, how is Hulk Hogan paying $20 million worth of legal bills? Right. Uh, and with $20 million being, as you mentioned, one-third of 1% of Peter yeah. Thiel's net worth, so nothing to him. And the whole thing put Gawker out of business, and that was the conspiracy... So if that was just a story, it would be fine. But then you really do a lot of subtle and nuanced analysis of what a conspiracy is and what the outcomes were and why people do these things and what were the effective techniques of it, what were ineffective, and again, did, did was the process worth the outcome? Yes. Well, in, in Zero to One, which is Peter's book, which is spectacular. Excellent book. Love his book. Uh, he says that a, a startup is the smallest conspiracy you can have to change the world, or, or is a group of individuals who have committed to change the world. And it struck me that that's really what his conspiracy was too. So on the one hand, it is motivated by this personal revenge, sort of revenge, right? They've wronged me, I'm going to get even. Uh, but on the other hand, I don't think that would have propelled him all. It, that wouldn't have propelled him for five years, which is how long he essentially waited from being outed until the Hulk Hogan case was funded. He came, you know, Peter has sort of a very interesting, unique worldview where he believes that political correctness is sort of the enemy of creative expression, well, almost everything, of innovation. He, yes. Almost like, everything he states, almost every opinion he has is like, you, whether you agree with him or not, you have to think about. How did he come up with yes. that way of saying it? Because, yes. like, I don't know if you read his two-part interview with Maureen Dowd. I did. About a year ago. That was amazing. Like, every yeah. it, that should be like school. School should study it. Like, every she's a a good interviewer, mm-hmm. and every answer he had sort of turns its, her question upside down in this weird way. He Just like his book first, Zero to One. He goes to first principles. He thinks about it completely from scratch, and he's not at all influenced about what other people think in that area. So sometimes he's wildly wrong. But he often comes up with wildly individualistic ways of of understanding something. How do you think he developed that mindset? 
I don't know. I don't know. I would imagine it's in some ways it goes to his childhood, which must have been somewhat lonely and isolating, right? He moves a lot. He grows up in South Africa for a time. There's this photo you can see. It's actually on Peter's Wikipedia page. He's like wearing like uh, this little schoolboy outfit. And at like six years old, is carrying a leather briefcase. Oh, like, yeah, you, you refer to that in the yeah, book. Just, I mean, that kid must have been very isolated. You're going to see it in the eyes, of, but must have clearly been so brilliant that he saw through. I say he's, he must have seen through all the bullshit around him. So that forced him to go to, to, to new things. And what's also interesting with Peter is when you talk to him, like <clears throat> if, you were to, if you were to ask Peter to describe even like how Nick Denton views the world. Teal would describe it. Teal practices what he calls the steel man argument. Do you know what that is? No. So most people argue or uh, view the world from a straw man perspective, right? Like, what do you? What What do I think most Donald Trump supporters think? I have a very unchair. I have the worst possible assumptions about them, right? Like, oh, people support Donald Trump because they're racist, because they're not very educated, or or whatever, right? With this, that's the the straw man. Peter, why is it straw? It's it, it's just called like you're building a straw man. Like if I was if I was arguing against you, I'd be like, uh, here's what James thinks. It'd be this. Actually, here's a good example because I just listened to your Jordan Peterson uh, interview. You know the famous interview where the woman was needling him, and she was saying, "So what yes. you're saying is each time she was doing that, that's a straw man argument, right? Where she was presenting a caricature of his views to then argue against." Mm. Peter does the opposite. He gives. He's incredibly charitable. He gives you your strongest argument, and he really thinks about what you think, and then he challenges that head on. You know, which is interesting, which is related to Robert Cialdini's book, Influence. The best ways to influence someone is to, um, you know, one of the techniques in his seven techniques is to answer the objections as quickly as possible. Yeah. And so much better to answer the strongest objections than the weakest. And I think having a lifetime of doing this steel man technique, he's just become really, he's just really good, concise, original thinker. So what's, what's an example where you, for instance, uh, would use that recently? Well, like when I was writing this book, uh, it would have been very easy for me to caricature either side, right? Like, and, and actually I had to really, like I really, A.J. Delario, who runs the article, the Hulk Hogan article, I really spent a lot of time trying to it originally, when I was writing articles about him, I would say I was guilty of simplifying him and and making him into this sort of cartoonish villain. But when I when I spoke to him, he became real. You, you know, and I'm, I'm sorry yeah. to interrupt because I want to hear the end of that thought. But what really made this book compelling to the last page is the fact that we don't. Re- you are presenting positive elements of every single person involved, so the reader can't even make a judgment. Without, I I wanted to keep seeing more about what your final thoughts were before I made a judgment. So that made it a page turner, honestly, to the end. Well, thank you. And I, I think I kind of, yeah, that's what I was trying to do. And, and, but it was work. You know what I mean? It was much harder to, it's much harder to argue against the strongest points of someone's point of view than to attack them where they're weak. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So obviously, the end of the story we know. This is yeah. one of those cases where we all we know every aspect of the story. But then there's your insights into the story, and then I do want to ask: you got access to Peter Thiel, who's very, uh, you know, again, it's not always you can't just call up a, uh, any billionaire right. on the phone and and talk to them, and and they're willing to fully participate in a book where they don't really know your opinion on it, and. 
You got total access to Nick Denton on the opposite side. Sounds like you had pretty good or total access to Hulk Hogan. Um, I mean, there seemed to be less of his opinion, but he wasn't as important as the conspiracy in a weird way. When I decided to make it about the conspiracy, yeah, in some ways Hulk Hogan became a little less important, uh, although he was he was the sensational celebrity in the trial itself, right? And a lot of the other coverage. But I, I, I tried to, despite my past opinions and past writing, I really tried to say, like, I really tried to be open. And then I told everyone that I wasn't interested in whether this should have happened or not. I was interested in what happened. And that was really true. And I feel like almost all the coverage completely misses the boat, primarily because it was written by journalists who sort of, were nervous, like the the journalists were so, and rightfully, so alarmed by what happened because a billionaire put a media company out of business and they themselves work for media companies that it was impossible for them to step back and look at this as as a historical event or even just like an objective event. But, but you know, what's interesting is, as we've all experienced, or anybody who's stuck their nose out has seen their nose beaten back in social media. Yeah. And so we've all kind of encountered some form of cyberbullying, you know, sure. whether we're adults or kids and, you know, even in the past few weeks I read about a suicide somebody had been bullied into some some yeah. anyway, uh wouldn't people kind of take the basic view that oh, this was horrible what Gawker published about Hulk Hogan and even Peter, people do have a right to be treated nicely and and be somewhat private if it's not news if it's not really newsworthy. Yes, but somehow that's not the view, right? I mean, I, Gawker was mean, yeah, to, to many people. Well, the the retroactive view is like Gawker was just a little mean; they were just a little snarky. Um, but if you've been on the receiving side of it, it's really mean. It I like ruins your life. Gawker liked to tell themselves that what they were doing was professional wrestling, but the truth is they were like punching people in the face. Do you know what I mean? Like I remember, so when I was about 21, I was the director of marketing in American Apparel and uh, we were involved in this lawsuit and uh, somebody hacked into my email address, stole all my emails and then leaked them to a number of media outlets. Uh, and Gawker was one of those media outlets and, and, and a Gawker reporter ran those emails and this happened on Christmas Eve. Uh, and Did you I, cry? Uh, I, I didn't cry, but I remember standing, I, I was... It, we were at my now wife's parents' house. So I was at my future in-law's house. And I remember standing in the bathroom, just sort of shaking. Uh, I mean, I still live in the house. So I, every time I go in this bathroom, I think about it. But like, I just remember thinking like, obviously my whole life is over. Like my whole career is done. Like, how could I have been so stupid? Like, I'm done. This is over. Obviously, I'm going to get fired. And the truth is, somebody committed an illegal act against me and then leaked it to a media outlet. Like, I did literally nothing wrong. Um, and it was this humiliating, awful experience. Um, but I re- here, here's, I think, the difference between me and, say, like Peter Thiel. When this happened to me, I thought, I didn't question that there was, not only did I, I it's like, I knew it was bad for me, but I didn't question whether this was objectively right or wrong or not. And I did not consider that someone could actually do something about it. Did you feel like physically hurting whoever reported on the emails? No, that's my point. I just, I like, I was in some ways so weak that I just assumed like, this is how it works. Do you know right. what I mean? But I guess, the, I guess, uh, 
one possible reason for the difference between you and the way Peter Thiel thinks is that you were 21 years old sure. without resources and beginning a career, yes. whereas Peter Thiel had or he had been a billionaire for a while. Yes, and so it kind of just already marinated his thinking. So he knew, okay, somebody makes an enemy against me. I'm going to be consequences. Well, so. Uh, have you ever had Eric Weinstein on the podcast? No, but I know I've talked to him. He's like he a brilliant dude. You should, he, you should have him on. I would totally listen to that. But so he runs, uh, or he's like the president of Teal Capital or whatever. He and Peter are very close friends. He's also a huge professional wrestling fan. But he he's talked about this thing. He says there's a type of person he calls like a high agency individual. So like, you know, agency, like do you have control over a situation or not? And so some you're trying to do something and they say, sorry, you can't do this, right? Or you're working on a project and it's stuck or you get rejected or in Peter's case, you know, you get uh, horribly abused by this media outlet and everyone says there's nothing you can do about it. And Eric said a high, a high agency individual sees those situations as a challenge, right? A high agency individual doesn't take no for an answer, Right, and so at at that moment, probably because where I was in my life, I was a low agency individual, and you could even argue that when Teal is first outed for for several years, he's a low agency individual. Well, not necessarily because there's there's you're talking about something inner, an yeah. inner quality. There was nothing like if 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 the goal is to jump ten thousand feet, then we're all low agency people. Sure. But he so so he couldn't jump ten thousand feet at that point. He had to figure out a way to build a staircase and but, get uh, up but there. But he did despair of like I don't think he didn't leave that on, on December seventh or whenever it was. He didn't go like I'm going to do something about this. It's only going to be a matter of time. Do you know what I mean? It was right. a it, he accepted defeat for quite some time and but worked himself like I, I said this. I was like, are you a high agency individual? And he said it took me a while to get there. Right, so it was a process. I think he, as he became more successful, as he thought about this more, as he interacted with other people who'd experienced Gawker, he found strength in that. And I guess also, look, his uh, core libertarianism, which maybe is not—I don't want to de describe him completely as a libertarian. Yeah. I think he's very has individual views that are different, but. He also must have wrestled with the fact that maybe they do have the right yeah. to say this, even though they're mean. I think it was, yeah. Is the, it was should they be able to do this to me? Is this what would this look like if the world was like this? Can I change this? You know, I think he asked himself a lot of those questions. And by the way, just to, I, I think it's an important caveat. That none of this is to all of this can be a separate discussion uh, from whether he should like whether Gawker being shut down was good or not. Like what matters is. That Teal thought this, right? So that I, I want people to zoom out and just think this something happened to this person. He found it objectionable and then decided he could do something about it and then set out to do it. Right. So, 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 so really, it's the story of like this very unique individual who has infinite resources. He has a goal that's a little unusual. Yeah. Um, and, and it has to be done in secret. Yeah. And it's the steps he takes to achieve his goal over a period of, you know, nine years or whatever it was. Yeah. And instead, uh, my point is, instead of moralizing about it, which is what the media has done, like we should be scared, like billionaires are destroying the media. We're all going to live in a fascist state. What we should first, I think we could first step back and admire the, uh, the ruthless effectiveness of it, right? I think there's something in that. And like 
the Count of it's it's Count of Monte Cristo esque. Like it was artistry right. what he managed to do. And and I, I almost don't like the word ruthless because it implies he did something negative. Right, that's a judgment. Yeah. So it's basically the the kind of very tactical way. But I he think it's this. ruthless in the sense that and there's a chapter in the book which is actually my favorite one to write because I, I think it was the most provocative for the me. Acknowledgments. No, 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 no. The the cha- <laughs> the the chapter on tearing your heart out. Right there's a line from the Count of Monte Cristo, which everyone should read. By the way, you think you know the story, but it's like an enormous book and it's amazing. Um, but the Count says, uh, "Like, woe that I did not tear out my heart when I set out for my revenge." Right, because it's like it's it's easy to say like, "Oh, I want to get even with someone," or "Oh, I'm going to do this," or "Oh, I'm going to disrupt this." Bro-. Like, you know, uh, Travis Kalanick is hates taxi cabs, and so he decides to start Uber. But at a certain point, it becomes real that you're like forcing people. Like, there's re- like idea of creative destruction. Destruction is real. Like people are hurt by that, right? And so when I say it's ruthless, I mean that like Peter set out to destroy a company that yes did some unconscionable things, but still employed three hundred people. And some of those people were janitors, right? And some of those people were uh, the wives of the people that worked there, or the husbands of the people that worked there. And um, you know, it, even for Nick Denton's flaws, I mean, he's someone I've spent a, a considerable amount of time with. Now he's like a he is a he's a complicated person, just like everyone else. So, and, so, so how did you get both sides to basically give you full access to something that was? So high stakes and so recent, really, that the emotions must be still running high, even yeah. if they claim not to be. Well, I, I think there's a couple of things. So, one with Peter, he had seen my previous writings on Gawker, so he knew I would at least give him a fair shake. Did you right? call him or did he call you? He emailed me. Uh, so, and and he just said, "Hey, I read one of your articles about Gawker. Let's have dinner sometime." And this was after it was known that this is he- after he was unmasked. Okay. Yes. Uh, and so, so that that conversation was like he was open to talking about it, and the idea of doing a book came together pretty quickly. I said, you know, look, I'm not interested in telling your story. I'm not going to carry water for anyone. If I were to write something, you would not be able to see it until it came off of the printers, right? Mm. Um, so, like, those were my terms really early on. And then, as it happened, and, and was there ever uh, and and. and- I, I, yeah. I, I want you to continue because okay. I don't want to be accused of interrupting too much. But um, was there any point where you were worried he was going to cut off access during this process? Yeah, all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, because and, he could just change his mind and say, I don't care anymore. Well, it wasn't even just that, like, I, I found out in retrospect, like, people around him were, like, very worried about the book and continually telling him, like, do not do this. This will be a huge mistake. Uh, but he was really into it. But it was also, like, you know, he would say, like, okay, Ryan, let's talk on, like, Saturday at 2 p.m. And then, so I'd, you know, work my whole day around it. And then at 2 p.m., he wouldn't have called. And then at 3 p.m., he wouldn't have called. At 4 p.m., he wouldn't have called. And then he'd text me and go, actually, can we do seven? And so then I'd wait till seven. And then he'd email me at seven and go, actually, can we do Tuesday? And then like three weeks later, we would talk. And like, so I just had, like, I knew that if this was a chore for him, he would just say no, like he didn't need to do it. And so a lot of it was just patience, like just being willing to be the lowest thing on his priority list. Even though you were the lowest on his priority list, he still wanted to get this story out correctly. Was that, is there a little bit of ego? Like, so all the journalists are trashing him. Yeah. 
and you know he's probably proud of what he did. And he you're is. calling it conspiracy, like yeah. you're putting him in the the ranks of the Machiavellian great conspiracy people. Well, I think he's not only proud of what he did. I think he thinks it's a good thing, right? Mm-hmm. And like he's very. I think you cannot argue that he's not earnest about that. Like he earnestly believes that this was the right thing to do. And I, I, I respect that. I don't necessarily agree with it entirely, but I at least respect it, and right? I, I will say, even though I know this is not about whether it was good or bad, and, and your book's brilliant for every other reason but that, I actually agree with him 100%. I, I would say I, I agree for the most part, but I tried to compartmentalize that, right? And then with Nick, believe it or not, Nick reached out because after all of this had happened to him, and, and again, the the real human cost and anguish about what happened to Nick Denton is also very real, right? He starts a $300 million company. Uh, he's sued by an actor or, or a celebrity over some post that he didn't even know was running. Uh, it's a $100 million lawsuit. He spends $10 million defending it. His company is dragged through the mud. It tears his company apart. It ultimately goes bankrupt. He has to declare personal bankruptcy and he has to rent out his apartment on Airbnb to cover his mortgage during the limbo period, right? Like, that is a shitty thing for a person to have to go through, even in that we can also agree that a prison sentence is a shitty thing, even if you're guilty, right? Um, and Nick had turned to uh, and, and become interested in Stoic philosophy because of that experience and had happened to come across some of my books. And that's sort of what we began talking about. Was it a coincidence that, that both reached out to you or did Nick already know you were writing this book? No, Nick didn't know I was writing it yet. And then I sort of told him that I was writing a book and I said, uh, you know, and, and and Nick is really into having conversations with people that he disagrees with or just having what he calls sort of fruitful dialogues. And so we just chat. We mostly did our conversations over chat and we would just chat. And our sort of arrangement was like, we'll talk about basically everything but this. And every once in a while, I'll ask him a question about what happened. And so uh, I think what I did with Nick and why it was successful is that I did 98% of the research. I did. I researched and found literally everything I could that I didn't have to ask him about. And and then I only the only the few things that I really needed to know from him, that's what we talked about. So So I think... You know, a couple of things I want to talk about. One is the story obviously is riveting and like I said, a page turner. So people should read the book because we don't have to go over the whole story yeah. here. Like I don't even say I'm not saying even saying this because I don't want to talk about the story. The story's in the book and you already write it. But I am really interested in the process here. Like, so I'll ask you a bunch of questions okay. about that. So Done. one is, you know, I know a big a valuable mentor of yours and one of my favorite authors is Robert Greene, you know. Uh, 48 Laws of uh, Power, or then he wrote Mastery. And he's so great at kind of taking an umbrella theme and providing a, a thousand historical stories and sources to kind of explore that theme. You could have taken that approach here. Instead of yeah. just writing one, one story, you could have called this, you know, the 48 Laws of Conspiracy or whatever. I'm just making My any. publisher did suggest that. Yeah. And, and, and you do have so many other stories about conspiracies in here that kind of branch off from the main conspiracy story. Did you? Consider that because that might have been more of like this uh, Machiavellian yeah. Bible of conspiracy. Uh, kind of, but I also like I'm not that interested in conspiracy. Like I'm not interested in like here's how to like destroy someone. But I, I'm I'm more interested in like how someone did it and everything that that entails. Like the the actual human 
ness of it, right? But I, but I think also maybe there's an element that you were fascinated by Peter Thiel personally. Yeah, of course. And Nick Denton personally. And also I wanted to go with what was the most artistically challenging, right? So like I... I I'd never done this before. I've never written. This is my longest book. The Daily Stoic is technically longer, but I don't think that yeah. really counts. This is my longest book by like almost like probably thirty or forty percent. It was my hardest to write, uh, and it was to, like actually I remember doing a podcast with you while I was writing it, and I was saying that it was like the hardest thing I've ever. I'm working on a book is the hard, hardest thing I've ever done, and you're like, well, why not just like not do it? <laughs> and and I was like, that's a really good question. But it was because, like, I was trying to push myself at it, to it. I was trying to emerge much better from the process. Well, well, I think also you you were writing this while you were we we were on the podcast yeah. for Perennial Seller. Yeah, and Perennial Seller is a book about what sort of books or works of creativity withstand the test of time. I I kind of think you wanted to challenge yourself to yeah. write a story that would withstand the test of time. So there's a crazy Robert Greene story with the book. Uh, if you let me tell yeah, it. Yeah. So, okay. So I was like, Robert, I think I want to write a book about this thing with Peter Thiel and the Scocker thing because we'd already talked about it. And, and, and I was like, I'm, I'm fascinated by how he did this. Like that, and this is sort of right after Trump is elected, right? And so just the idea of like somebody solving this impossible problem was fascinating to me. And uh, so Robert was like, you know what you should read? You should read, he was like, Machiavelli in Discourses on Livy has a chapter on conspiracies. He just talks about all about conspiracies. And I love I was how like, Robert Greene just knows knew an it obscure up the top of his head. Yes. chapter in an obscure Machiavelli book. But this is why it's so amazing. So I was like, oh, okay. And and it turned out I'd already read it, but I forgot it. But I, I found it on my Furthermore, shelf. Furthermore, I love how you knew that chapter in an obscure Machiavelli book. Yeah, and so I read it and it's like really fascinating. Machiavelli is basically saying, he's like, princes can wage war against each like states can wage war but he's like a conspiracy is available to everyone like anyone can conspire against the king and in fact that's why it's actually really hard to be the king because like so many people want to dethrone you or hurt you or whatever right and so i read this and and then uh like maybe two weeks later i'm in new york uh and i'm interviewing I have dinner at Peter's house. This is the scene that I describe at the beginning of the of the, of the intro, and uh, we, we like I, I come in and it's like doorman takes my coat and and I'm just sort of walking around doing as I always do. I'm looking at the books on his shelf, and I'm at this corner uh, one by the window, and he has discourses on Livy there, like the exact book on conspiracies. He has it on his shelf, and again, nobody has this book. Like it's it's like. Like Machiavelli's like fourth most famous book, you know, and there it was, and I was like, "This is, this is why I have to write this book. This is like so perfect." Because, like, why did that? Why did, why did that connection and that and the it just felt like fate, you know yeah. what I mean? Like it was like Robert gave me the suggestion, and I love the suggestion, and then I it actually connected with the like it was actually somehow a part of the material. And Teal, like Teal, and I had a conversation on the spot about that chapter in the book like really so he definitely had read it he'd read it like in college or something and he it was in his mind he has this you know very incredible mind and he could he could he could discuss it at length off the top of his head so 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 okay i'm actually curious now what's in that chapter that let's say are the salient points of a conspiracy well actually the entire book is structured around that right so machiavelli says that there are three parts of a conspiracy the planning the doing and the aftermath essentially or before during and after and he actually says that the after is the most dangerous part um, because that's when everything is unstable and crazy but he talks like so this book is I split it up into three parts the planning the doing and the and and the aftermath and so that shaped the entire direction of the book 
Can you can't you say about anything? It's the planning, the during, and the aftermath. Yeah, of course. But but the idea that it we we tend to think like an assassination or a conspiracy is this sort of impulsive act, right? It's this sort of freak occurrence, right? Somebody had enough, and then they just did something. And Machiavelli is talking instead about all the planning that goes into it. And he talks about the importance of secrecy, and he talks about the importance of you know you can't do a half you can't do a half measure. You have to go all the way. You have to be totally ruthless. You can't, he's like, you know, he's talking like the cliche. It's like, you can't leave their their son because then the son will come and get revenge on you after, right? Like it's this very ruthless sort of amoral take on conspiracy. I have to say Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when you know you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. 
Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. So basically what he's saying, what you're saying, and what Peter Thiel did is that there are some situations where someone is hurt enough, like let's take the example of you kill a son's father, where the son's going to just say, okay, but 20 years later, you might see me again. And so this is a situation where Peter Thiel had enough self-control to say, okay, I'm not going to do anything now, but I'm going to wait, and I'm really upset, and I'm going to do something. Well, and there's a line from Machiavelli, which actually I used maybe three different times in the book because I think it defines a lot of different moments where he says, basically, a man who who is hurt and has no options becomes a very dangerous threat to the prince. Right, but but Peter Thiel of course, had many options, which is one, to ignore it and lead, continue to lead a successful and I, brilliant life. I, I, you can't, when someone's reputation and sense of identity and dignity is hurt at the level that he happened to be hurt, I don't, I, I, I think he was, I don't think he, he had no option for him. Like, yes, of course, he literally could have done nothing. But I think with who he is, to be able to sleep at night he had to do something. Right, but I'm sure, like you described that situation when you're 21, yeah. and, and today with the internet now, every single day someone probably tries to attack your reputation, my reputation, the reputations of the listeners. It's not like I'm sitting around thinking, oh my God, I'm going to get back at this person yeah. like all day long, or I would just be but, obsessed but every day. But that's the point. When Gawker picked a good victim in me, right? Because like I'm a nobody, I... Um, I don't have a lot of resources. Uh, I'm not familiar with how the world works. Do you know what I mean? Like Gawker picked someone who was predisposed to take it when they wrote about me. I still think if you live life at where anger is planting the seeds of your goals, the the results. It's like you say. It's like you say towards the end of the book. Even you know the in the aftermath part. The aftermath is going to have some unintended negative consequences. Well, I make no state. I I I. Don't believe I know anything, and I definitely know I didn't say anything about whether Peter Thiel is a happy, contented human being or not. To me, that's a totally secondary point. Do you think he is right now? Um, I suspect he's happier than people think, but 
if you ask it, like somebody asked that, I was listening to a podcast once and I forget who it was, but they said, are you happy? And he said, you know, well, and when Peter's flustered, it's really funny. He's like, ah, he makes these sort of noises, but he, so, ah, and he, and then he sought to define what he was like, well, it's really hard to define what happiness is. And that's usually, if you're, if that's your answer, it's, you're probably not coming at it from a happy place. Okay. But, but I agree. Happiness is hard to define, but, but well-being or contentment is a little easier to define. Yes, but if I said, are you happy or not, you would probably say like, yes, no, maybe, a little bit, sometimes. Right. You wouldn't immediately, you wouldn't ask for a definition of the word. Because right. it's, it's also, an, you know it when you feel it, see it kind of thing. So, so, so again, you get this great access. I guess you, you approached a publisher who thought this was a good idea. Well, the book was my own little conspiracy, right? Like, I knew lots of people wanted to write a book about this. I knew that if it was revealed that I was writing a book about it, maybe certain people would be less likely to talk to me, mm. right? Even Nick might, if Nick was sort of, oh, Ryan's casually doing a book, maybe he's going to be more open to talking to me than when he sees a press release for a book, right? Um, and so keeping it kind of low key, keeping it secret um, was really important. And it was sort of like, Three people at my publisher knew that I was working on this book, and our internal acronym was UMB, Untitled Media Book. And so, when people asked what I was working on, I said I was working on a book about media. When I tried to interview like reporters uh, at Gawker or even some of the fringe characters in this, I said I'm working on a book about media, which is true, but it was a unique take on it. And then it was only this is kind of funny. Um, once I was about two thirds of the way bo- uh, done with the book, and I knew that whoever was first to this story would have a big advantage, right? Because like people aren't going to read 10 books about this or three books about this. There's going to be one. And so I knew other people were taking their time getting around to doing one. And the other, other reporters had written a lot about this. So I announced it in June that it was coming out. Um, and uh, we said it was coming out in winter of 2018, um, which, really, which would seem like December, not the end of February. And originally it was supposed to come out in March. Um, but I announced it that way. And, and I announced it, like when I announced it in June, it would have been impossible to beat me to market by December. And so I think there are people who might've been considering working on a book were like, whatever, I'm not mm. going to do it. So like, so see, secrecy, both for Peter Thiel and for you, yeah. becomes a critical component of effectiveness. And I think- like say, take me for an example. I think to my own situations, I have a hard time keeping a secret about yes. anything. Yeah. <laughs> so I just write about anything going on in my life. I think mm-hmm. that's both for good and for bad. I'm very vulnerable when I write, yeah. and um, and I just say what I what I think. Um, but you know, I think one of the things you maybe learned from writing this book is how effective, because it's unclear immediately why uh, it's unclear at first glance why Peter Thiel felt from the beginning. He needed to be secretive because yeah. there's a benefit to saying, I'm Peter Thiel, you're wrong. I have a huge platform. Yeah. I'm right and I'm going to destroy you. And there's a certain We're, amount of ego in that too, right? It feels good. It feels like you're making progress. And, and it might be progress because he does have a huge platform with people who pay attention to him. Yeah. And he might have been saying, hey, you went too far and I want people to agree with me and then we're going to fight. Well, I do like, you know, Peter's always questioning things. And so I think what, he's like, wait, why do I have to tell this person that I'm coming for them? Right? Like, why would I give them a heads up? Right? That, w- that would seem silly. And so that was part of it. And yeah, it's like if I'm working on a book and I'm trying to beat these other people to market, why am I going to 
give away my, why am I going to give them progress updates on how it's coming along so they could use that information to beat me? But let's say, let's take another, the flip side of it is let's say you're starting a company. Yeah. And as you mentioned, Peter writes, this is, you know, the, the smallest type of conspiracy you can do. And there is this creative destruction involved. Sometimes as soon as you start, you say, this is what I'm doing because sure. you want to scare out the competitors and That's you want to get money, you want to raise money for it, you want to get excitement for it around you. Yeah, so you want to be known as the voice doing it. Sometimes there's marketing advantages to mm -hmm. being, but but it's like, why do you have to tell people what you're doing? There, it, there really is no, there should it's not that you should never tell people what you're doing. But you should but think about it. Why are you telling people about what you're doing? And is there actual tangible benefits to doing so? So, so Peter must have reasoned, and you could tell me if this is true, or not, he must have reasoned that the benefit would be that he has such a wide platform, probably just as wide as Gawker in some yeah. ways. He has such a wide platform, he could have maybe uh, gained public support. But the negative, which would have been substantial, is that the attacks could have gone from the courtroom to attack Gawker, further attacking Peter, yeah. and that and the entire media industry attacking Peter, and maybe the consequence of that would have affected the outcome in the courtroom. So he decided, okay, my platform isn't big enough to withstand that if I want to be effective. Yeah, there's a dictum from Napoleon where he says, never do what your enemy would like you to do for the reason that he would like you to do it, hmm. right? And By the way, that's a, a proverb in chess as well. Never, yeah. ma never make the move your opponent wants you to do. Because they want you to do it, because it's good for them, right? And I think Peter realized, oh, if Gawker knew that I was involved, it would change their legal strategy, right? If That's the interesting thing about this. Gawker thought they were winning for the vast majority of the events of from 2012 to 2014. They thought they were slowly winning a war of attrition against Hulk Hogan. And you know, Peter has described Hulk Hogan as only a single-digit millionaire, which I think is something that only a billionaire would say and with a straight face. But it reminds it's true. me of Rockefeller's uh, exp expression about J.P. Morgan. So J.P. Morgan died, and his um, in his will, he he left about eighty million dollars to his family. And Rockefeller said, "Huh, I thought he was rich." Yeah, exactly. And so a single-digit millionaire cannot spend ten million dollars fighting a legal battle. They cannot. They cannot fight a four-year legal battle. Well, well, it's too expensive. This is what I was wondering when I was reading it. I'm sure Gawker tried to settle, and you you briefly mentioned this, but why didn't Hulk just settle at some point? Why did he keep going? And he when did he find out Peter was involved? Like after. So he, he only so knew why a rich. He, he only knew a rich businessman was funding his lawsuit. So why did he stick with it as long as he did when well, he could have settled for millions? Probably. I think a, a couple reasons. So one. Um, they do some mock trials. This is way later on. They do some mock trials that give them like almost irrefutable evidence that like they have a super good case and they are going to win. But the other thing, and this is something Machiavelli says, he says like you must be either uh, like much stronger than your enemy or you must hate them very much, right? Like you got to have one or the other. And uh, and and Gawker had so mistreated Hulk Hogan, both in running the sex tape, both in rejecting his plea as a human being. He must have been so angry. And then in the course of the trial, they were just needling him and needling him. And then they, somebody, uh, you know, we, we can't point fingers because we don't know for certain, but then suspiciously, other parts of the tape leak during the trial, right? Or during, before the trial, when, when Hulk Hogan was not aware he was being recorded, he said a bunch of racist things on, on camera, um, like disgusting, vile, racist things. Uh, his daughter was dating a black man and he really didn't like her boyfriend. And 
he's venting and he says all these racist things and he's recorded. And suspiciously, these leak in 2015, right around when the trial was supposed to originally happen. Mm. So Hulk Hogan loses all of his endorsements. He's immediately turned into a huge villain. Um, uh, uh, he's kicked out of the, re- the Wrestling Hall of Fame. So one of the reasons he proceeds and doesn't take the money is that he basically has nothing to lose. He's, and, like, and he's did, so angry. Did he have, um, so you refer to a, a co-conspirator, a young man named Mr. A, you refer to him, who approaches Peter Thiel with this entire strategy outline. Did Mr. A or the lawyer, um, I forget his name, Charles Holder. Charles Harder. Harder. Uh, uh, did, did they say to Hulk, listen, you know, we got you on this. You're not going to worry about the bills on this. Was there any that sense was from, also- from the beginning? He knew he wasn't going to have to worry about the bills, but they, they, and he really they, trusted that. Like, cause they could yes. have just been saying it as far as he was concerned. Sure. Sure. Or they could have abandoned him at any time. Also, also did, would they have, let's say he lost after rejecting a settlement. Could they, do you ever get the sense that they said, listen, we got your back on this. No matter what, don't give up. I'll, I'll, let me say no comment on that. Okay, uh, but but they they can they they leaned on him quite heavily, and 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 convinced him that it was mostly upside and very little downside for him to continue. And I think he was very ready to be convinced because he had come to see what he was doing as heroic and important right there's this one of the one of the sort of discoveries that that, that that is uncovered in the process as they're researching gawker and then it becomes a seminal moment in the trial there's this video of a woman uh having sexual intercourse on the on the floor of a bar uh and gawker had run the tape and then when she'd asked them to take it down they said look you had sex in a public place like you got to live with it and they said like just suck it up like this will pass and then internally they forwarded around and they were like, blah, blah, blah. They were making fun of her and stuff. When this is uncovered, I think Hulk Hogan and some of these other stories, I think they Hogan and Mr. A and Teal began to believe that what they were doing wasn't about them. It was for these other people. Like I think they be still it's harder to it's hard to let's say if you're Hulk Hogan and you just got your all your income cut yeah. off. It's hard to say to leave oh, ten million dollars on the table. Of yeah. course, of course. But but I so I think it was a combination of those factors. Confident he's going to win. Really, no financial downside. And then also, this had become kind of like an epic quest. So so like I I read a story like this in part because it's fascinating, and you're a good writer, and I I know some of the people involved, so it became for me extra fascinating. Um, but I also try to look for for positive lessons, yeah. and I think you give those. Even though it's weird, like it's not like I'm planning any conspiracies of my own. I, I think that's almost an unhealthy way to think. Me too. But but you know, I think I think people should, when they're trying to be effective, there is a component where you have to sort of analyze. Okay, how much is going to be secretive? How much? How much am I a chess player trying to outwit my opponent? And how much I'm going to be just totally open? So I think that's one lesson. Another lesson is what you just said. You know, either I got to be more powerful, or I've got to be more. Let's call it motivated yeah, sure. than my opponent. Um, and you know, what's what's say another lesson? Well, I think the reassuring thing I took from it, I might have mentioned this earlier, is this sort of extreme confidence, right? Like that, like extreme competence? C- confidence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like he did a really good job. Like you could disagree with what he with what Peel Teal did, 
but he was like special forces level organized and strategic and creative about because, it. Because not because as you say in the book, it's not just the Hulk Hogan case. It's yeah. almost selection bias that Hulk Hogan yeah. became the case. He would have won with another case. Right. He was that you know, uh the lawyer Harder was uh was sending out lawsuits and cease and desist yeah. like every day, it sounds like. And and even Denton admits this. Denton's like, if it wasn't Hulk Hogan, they would have got us on something else. Because it was like an onslaught from this guy and yeah. from Mr. A. Yes. And did Mr. And, A have other attorneys independently also? Uh they did for, like uh they did uh sue, they had another attorney, Sue Gawker, over uh unpaid interns, that they had an intern program and they didn't pay people. Gawker spent a million dollars defending itself on that case. The Gawker ended up winning, but it still cost him a million dollars. And and Mr. A, again, so just to, to describe, Mr. A is this young guy, I think he's 26 when he first meets Peter Thiel, and he basically he knows Peter's upset at Gawker. He basically arranges a meeting and unveils this whole multi-year strategy to destroy Gawker, which Peter says, okay, yeah. you have a blank check. And, uh, uh, or actually, I don't know if he said you yeah. have a blank check, but you have- He, he gave him about $10 million. That was the budget. So, so, so a lot of this strategy was not outlined by Peter, although I'm sure they probably talked a lot, but, but by Mr. A. Yeah. But, or, uh, you know, so all kind of hit from every angle, be secretive, uh, Find people who are really motivated to continue because settlements are going to happen all the yeah. time, and let's it's it's almost death by a thousand cuts, and then one big slash to cut off the head. So, so when I said it as extreme competence, that's maybe like a, that doesn't sound super prescriptive. Maybe it's that being right is not enough, right? So, like I think we live in this culture where it's like, okay, I'm opposed to this, so I'm going to sign a petition about it, or I don't like this, so I'm going to write a really thoughtful. Uh, medium post about it or a really thoughtful Facebook post about it or I'm going to change my Facebook avatar and that'll really show them. Do you know what I mean? And I think what Teal realized and what Teal's sort of actions are a testament, and at least to me, is it's like, no, actually sometimes really serious situations require taking action and 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 getting their hands dirty. Well, Do you know what I mean? What, this is what we were talking about earlier is that, you know, and and you know we're talking about it for a variety of reasons, but uh, nice intentions with nice tactics don't always aren't yes. always effective. Yes. If your intentions, so then it always um, begs the question: Do the means justify the outcome? And that's what this is about. If you want to be effective and you believe in what your final outcome is, and the means don't damage other people irresponsibly, I guess. Then the means probably do justify the outcome. Look, and that's the central question of Machiavelli's work: is do the ends justify the means? And I'm, they, I don't think they always do, but I think they sometimes do. Okay, when don't they? Well, if uh, if, and let's assume your intentions are good. Well, okay, so Teal sets out to destroy Gawker, but and with good intentions, with because good intentions, Gawker's mean to yeah. the girl on the bathroom floor, yeah, right. to Hulk Hogan, to Peter, and let, to thousands let, of let's others. Let's stipulate that he was honorably motivated. We can agree to dis or agree or disagree, but let's stipulate that he was. He's a billionaire, so and and has access to the best people. You know, he could do anything. Like you think about Harvey Weinstein. He goes, "Oh, these these women are trying to discredit me. What? How can I fight back?" And Harvey Weinstein does a conspiracy, right? And he he hires uh, like Mossad agents to to spy on these women. They Tons pretend of to be reporters, columnists, and media people. All he, in bribe, every he basically company. bribes the media. You know, he he does horrible, horrible things. So like all of those things were options that Teal could have done, right? Like 
maybe worse. All the things that Russia has done in the 2016 election, Teal could have done. I mean, Teal owns the majority of a company called Palantir, which is like the most opaque but powerful sort of defense intelligence company in the world. Like he could have hacked into Gawker's servers. Although if he had done that I th- and that was revealed ever, then that would the consequence of that would have been much more negative for him than anything well, else. Cer- certainly, certainly. And I, and I don't, I'm not, I'm, and although this has become a narrative, I'm not saying he, he seriously considered doing those things, but he could have done those things and perhaps they would have accomplished what he was trying to accomplish faster. Like he could have stolen Nick Denton's cell phone leaked embarrassing photos and then blackmailed Nick into shutting Gawker down. Right. Like hypothetically. Right. Like that, if this was like a like a like a, a one hour show. drama. Yes. That's like right. that's a tactic he could if have. If he done. was a James Bond villain, there was many things he could have done. And so again, if we've stipulated that what he's trying to do is for the, the common good, do those ends justify those means? I don't think that they do. I think I would have written a very if if I had discovered mm-hmm. uh in in the process that he'd done a, a bunch of horrifically vile things. I think I would have written a very different book. Yeah, but he made this decision to not do that. That that's a great point cuz let, let's take the extreme. Like let's say he used Palantir which is uh essentially this CIA funded and other yeah. funded uh company that uh more or less without going into it has a, has a lot of intelligence about yeah. people and yeah. determines where terrorists are and what frauds are happening at banks and it provides yeah. some valuable services but you it's easy to bring it into any kind of conspiracy yeah. theory right if he had used that that would have been a much scarier prospect because then it shows that with the kind of resources someone like him has you can really do d- he he didn't but you could potentially do damage to a large number of people well, and Roger Ailes was hassled by Gawker. I don't want to say he was treated unfairly because he seemed like a scumbag, but uh, uh, Roger Ailes had a problem with Gawker, right? And what did he do? He hired private detectives to follow Gawker reporters around, hoping to find damaging information to use one way or another, right? As far as we know, Teal did not do that. And the reason he said he didn't do it was one, he he only wanted to do things that were ethical and mm-hmm. legal. And two, he was also convinced that in the long run, those unethical means are 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 both less effective and have the dangerous uh, unintended consequence of making you like the enemy that you're trying so, to defeat. So, so this is a very important line on the means justify the the ends. So I think that's that answers that question. Yeah. And so 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 then um what other what other techniques kind of stood out for you in terms of like the effectiveness of his campaign to destroy Gawker? Well, so one mistake he makes is that he doesn't plan all the way to the end, mm-hmm. right? And the 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 aftermath section of the book is really probably where the wheels kind of look like they're starting to come off. He wins this verdict, but it's like he didn't quite think about what would happen after he won. Like he planned for what bankruptcy court would look like and this and that, but he he had no plan for whether if his role was ever exposed. He had no plan uh, if 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 Gawker realized that it was him and then started coming after him. He 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 rushes headfirst into endorsing Donald Trump, which creates not only a political backlash but it paints recto- retroactively everything he did in a negative light. So so let's hit a couple of these issues, including the Trump one. But first, uh, I think the first thing is he didn't realize what would happen if. He, his role in this was exposed, even in the aftermath. Yeah, which you could, on first glance, you could think, okay, nothing will happen because 
he won, so yeah. it's over, so who cares? So maybe there's an ego thing about, uh, yeah. don't mess with me. Yeah. You know, but um, it also sort of shows for all these conspir- tinfoil hat conspiracy theorists out there, how hard it is to have a conspiracy. Right. Because like people say, oh, 9-11 was a conspiracy. You know how many thousands of people would have to be involved? And here's right. a case where like three people were involved in the conspiracy right. and they're still exposed as a conspiracy. Yeah. Like, like for all these big conspiracies that that are supposedly out there, yeah. they would be exposed so easily if they right. actually were real. Of course, of course. Yeah, and and uh, you know, Machiavelli says the most dangerous part is when you you sort of when victory is in your grasp and you're flush with it and you you overreach. And that's also what Teal did, right? So after he wins, or as he's winning and then after he wins, he allows Mr. A and Charles Harder to proceed with more lawsuits against Gawker, which is the equivalent of kicking a man when he's down, right? Although wouldn't a lawyer do that anyway? Unless the uh, ringleader was uh, looking big picture enough and said, if you do this... It will draw so much attention, and and it will make the victim look so much more sympathetic that it will have uh, it will not be worth what we're able to get from it. And yes, Teal thought, okay, Harder just won this case, so of course he would take on other cases, and that wouldn't be suspicious. But I think Hulk Hogan, who's more of a showman, who know who knew what it's like to be kicked mm. when you're down in the ring, knows that that actually turns the crowd against the winner. Mm. And so could could Peter Thiel have said, okay, Gawker is just one part of the problem, but there are many sites like this. Could he have maybe... That would have been a bit... His, I, one way, and he could do it now, but if he was to say like, find uh, causes of action against Breitbart, mm-hmm. you know, or... What you point out in the, your conclusion is yeah. that what if he had done that? Because Breitbart certainly has had many Gawker-like yeah. stories... But in, you know, instead, Tio sort of has a friendship, or he he blurbs Milo Yiannopoulos's book. You know, Tio he endorses Donald Trump. Tio gets sort of flush with victory. I think Tio makes some associations that make it impossible for people who would otherwise be sympathetic to what happened. It makes it impossible for them to 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 support him. So 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 I want to ask about the the Trump thing. But I also one question that came up. The only person's name who you never reveal in the book was the was the co-conspirator right. who sort of yeah. had the whole idea. Yeah. Like f- several years after the 2007 outing of Peter Thiel, Mr. A shows up, assuming that Peter Thiel would still be interested in this, yeah, because Thiel had comments in the media and so on. And then it's a, a huge process from beginning to end. If I were Mr. A, I don't know if I would have this patience. Like essentially, yeah. the question is, did Mr. A get rich off of this? <laughs> so Mr. A was paid twenty five thousand dollars a month. For five-ish years, right, which is great for a twenty-six-year-old. Yes. And by, by the way, that's great yeah. for everyone. Right, right. But you're associating yourself with a billionaire hedge yeah. fund manager, and Mr. A sounds like a smart guy. Presumably, he wants other things in life. Well, so I don't want to. I don't want to confirm or deny speculation about who he actually is. So I'll sort of be careful with the answer because my commitment to him is that I would never say who he was, mm-hmm. uh, unless he somehow releases me from that at some point. But. Um, I would say that being in Teal's orbit and becoming his sort of trusted, secretive lieutenant has presented a number of very lucrative opportunities for him. And so, yes, he's so, doing quite well. So so his internal conspiracy was this secrecy, which yeah. includes even the very day, um, plus this confidence, plus having a very strong motivation 
um, which is to get close to, you know, you're, you're the average of the five people around you. So yeah. make those five people billionaires and you'll, you'll do very well. Well, I, I say this in the book, but Rich Cohen has this line. He says, one definition of evil is to treat people as a means to an end or as a tool for your own benefit, right? And so of all the, of all the motivations on Teal's side, you know, Mr. A's are probably the least pure, right? To him, this is like the opera. This is an opportunity for career advancement rather than some sort of. But he's kind of upfront about that, even yeah. in the book, in sure, the sense, sure. and upfront in an oblique way. You don't mention this specifically yeah. in the book, but if you're just basically approaching someone you don't know with this plan to destroy another company, okay, it's pretty. He could have come to deal with an app idea. He chose this, right? But there, the, he thinks about them equally, right? And so, but of course, along the way, if he wasn't a psychopath or whatever, yeah. maybe they've become friends, they and do, that's yes. why they work together, yeah. and 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 so on. But would Teal have been stuck if Mister A had ever gotten a huge opportunity outside of Teal's orbit and and left? I I, th- I think that was a word. I mean, Teal's problem was to Teal's once he's picked the strategy, funded it, put it in motion. Teal's main obstacle because he was right. Like it's like he bet he made this complicated bet and he just needs to wait for it to pay off. But if you if people back out, if your funding back, you know, if your funding drops out or, you know, any number of mistakes can mess it up. So his big thing was keeping the conspiracy together. Right. Like Mr. A could have just started working at Google and talked or, about everything. Or he could Hogan, have written the book. Hogan could have accepted uh, a uh, a settlement, right? But Charles that, Harder could have said, "I don't want to do this anymore. I think we should settle." You know, but for all we know, there we don't know. You don't even know what selection bias occurs along the way. And what I mean yeah. is, perhaps there were many Hulk Hogan's that seemed like the big case, but they did accept the settlement. Yeah. For all we know, is there were other happen, lawyers yeah. and that they thought were going to be the main lawyer, and they did disappear. We also don't know. There's kind of a bigger selection bias here, which is. We don't know what other angry conspiracy things Peter Thiel has going on, where this yep. now happens to be the one that he won, but other things. He could have a number of other failed conspiracies or a number of other ongoing conspiracies right. uh, that, that are, he could be the, cre- I mean, there was that argument a couple months ago where it's like, could Elon Musk have created Bitcoin? Like, could he be Sat- what is it? Satoshi, Satoshi. Nakatomi? Uh, it's actually a, 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 a hilarious conspiracy theory we should start right now. Which is that actually it's Peter Thiel. Like that could be a given who Peter Thiel is. So it's certainly possible. He created a, a he created a digital yeah. currency. He basically invented digital currency with PayPal, as well as actually Elon Musk with X.com. Yeah. But uh that could be his secret. He could be the creator of Bitcoin and have, you know, billions and billions of dollars of Bitcoins and we would never know. So so in your I mean, so now the book's out. Yeah. Peter's read it, Nick Denton's read it, Hulk Hogan's read it. What do they think? Um, I don't know if they've all read it. They all have it. Um, I don't know if they've read it. I think it, to a large degree, they're like, w- I know Teal has read it. Uh, he he got uh, a copy when it came off the printer. What, what did he say? Uh, he 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 thought it was fair, right? He he was like that. This was fair. Was more than I could have expected, right? Because I think he went into the process, especially, uh, I mean, a crazy thing is so, you know, my books came off the printer like March or February 1st, like middle of January, the Michael Wolf book comes out. So like anyone who was working on a book where they didn't have creative control, got, I'm sure got super nervous. Like I would have been very nervous if I was Peter Thiel and the Michael Wolf book came out and Trump just got destroyed by it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I think that it wasn't that. 
Uh, although there are moments like that. I think that it wasn't a total hit job was was uh, appreciated. Well, let's talk about the Trump thing for a second because, again, Peter Thiel thinks, let's say, five layers deeper than the yeah. rest of us about every decision. So, you know, the simplest... So he made a speech at a Republican convention. He yeah. Not only did he support Trump, but he made this speech in favor of Trump, which is so against what's the way Silicon Valley was leaning. Yeah. And I'm not yeah. saying anything yeah. good or bad about what he did it's or Trump or anything. position, like times a thousand. And by the way, you came out very uh, uh, verbally against Trump with your article, which we even did a podcast yeah. about, a letter to your dad, why you shouldn't vote for Trump. So I don't know if that, so question number one yeah. is, did that hurt your communication with Peter? I don't know if it hurt it, but I would imagine people close to him were like, you might've set yourself up for something here. Did you discuss it with him? Uh, I would ask him questions about Trump. Uh, mm -hmm. Most of that had to be off the record, but like- Did he ask about you about your article though? Um, the article came out before, so mm -hmm. it never it never came up, but I, I, I do think he was probably worried that that might be something I would go after him on. So, so, so then the question uh, remains, which is, given that he didn't know who was going to really win the election yeah. at that point, um, and and he does make some comments like, if, you know, uh, sometimes if you're a contrarian, often you're going to yeah. be wrong, but when you're right, you're really right. So that's a case of where he was really right. But what you know, what, why do you think he was so vocal and outspoken and, you know, helpful to a particular political side, which is sort of rare for yeah. a billionaire because you have business interests on both sides of the aisle. What's well, rare for him it's just out of character for him personally. I think some of it was sort of flush with victory. He did something a little bit impulsive. Like I think he probably wishes in retrospect he had not been so full-throated in the endorsement, right? Because it didn't, I don't think it made a difference. Like I don't think his speech at the convention convinced any voters, right? But it just opened him up to a lot of uh, hate and criticism, right? So in some ways it's a it was secret, it was impulsive, you could argue that it might be somewhat motivated by greed, you know, or contrarianism, or it's an emotional reaction that he really didn't like the other candidate or whatever. It, for any number of reasons, it's the opposite of what he did for with Gawker. On uh, the other way of looking at it, it's exactly what he did with Gawker. It was contrarian. It was a long shot. It was a bet on Middle America. You know, it's all these number of things. But like, if 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 Hillary had won, yeah, then could he have wondered, am I putting? Palantir at risk, for instance, which is such a huge government vendor. Yeah, I think what, the way he looked at it, and I remember I we had a meeting. We I was interviewing from the book, and then I I left, and then like two days later, he made that one point two five million dollar you know in uh, donation to Trump's campaign or whatever. And I remember thinking, I wonder, like, what do you think one point two million dollars would get you if you donated it to Hillary Clinton? Like it probably get you like a sweater or something. Do you know what I mean? But you donate one point two five million dollars to Trump at that moment, and he had a seat at the head of the transition team. Right. So it's almost like the way you would evaluate a poker hand. Like, yes. what's the expected value of of this one point two five million yeah. across? You know, and, and he he made the the bet with the highest expected value. That's I think that's what he did, which is a totally logical and in some ways brilliant way to do it but also a completely insane thing to do. Well, and also, again, it engendered so much ill will against him in Silicon Valley. He's even moving to LA. Well, yeah. he, he has right. homes in both places right. anyway. Right. So for him to come out and say he's moving is almost yeah, right. disingenuous. Not saying he's lying, but he yeah. already had a home in LA and he already, yes. you know, the, the 
for for billionaires, the world is your home anyway. Right, right. But he makes this big statement like that he's leaving kind of the the place that made created his wealth because he hates this one view of Silicon Valley. Yeah, I think it was a very the endorsement. It, if he sincerely believes that Trump could have been or will will be or is a a good president, in some ways we should respect what he did because he certainly paid. A very steep price. So, do you think that you think over the course of these past, let's say, eleven years, he has not that he didn't have a thick skin before, because obviously you have to have a thick skin to have the success he's had, even in two thousand seven. But do you think he's developed a thicker skin? Well, that's the irony, right? He does this thing to protect his own privacy, and he becomes famous, like way more famous than he ever could have been. As a, he might even be more famous than Mark Zuckerberg. Do you know what I mean? Like his name is now known. And spoken of often, not usually in positive terms. So um, I think, yeah, I think he's had to. And that's, I think, that's your point about the aftermath. Um, to some extent, he has more negative consequences on his reputation than he would have had otherwise. Yeah, and, in the and, long run. Now, because the, the outing in the in retrospect seems in the, minor. Yeah. yeah. Well, look, history is is uh, uh, there's a quote I have in the book from I think T.J. Jackson Lears, and he says, all history is the history of unintended consequences. Hmm. And I think, yeah, there was a number, Teal succeeded, and then also there were a number of unintended consequences that we're all reeling from. Do you um, do you like him? I'm fascinated by him. I, I don't know. Like, did you, develop, did you develop a friendship or close to I, that? Friendship, it would probably be a, too strong of a characterization, and also something I would be somewhat resistant to while I'm Doing a book about someone, I think, but I I certainly have respect and fascination and uh, admiration for him for a lot of ways. There's things I'm appalled by the Trump thing. Like I first, I personally find it repulsive, right? Like I think it was an enormous mistake, but um, I think what what this just the singular uniqueness of him as an individual overrides that. And actually, I have the same attitude towards Nick Denton. I think he was totally wrong. I think Cockroach was a horrible, toxic company. I'm in some ways, I'm I, I think the world is better with it not existing. And but, yet, I love talking to him. And and we, we I think we talked about this right before the podcast. It's like Gawker was there and had it did its thing, and now it's gone. But now the entire internet has turned into one big Gawker. I feel. Yeah, and that might, you know, one of the failures of the conspiracy might be that it took too long, you know? Or, uh, or maybe just that, you know... It was impossible. You, plug, you yeah. plug the hole, but the ship sank, you know, and... Uh, you could make either argument, yeah, that it was impossible from the beginning, um, or that it took too long, and... Does it, Peter... What does Peter think about that? Well, so he said something to me, and it's a good point. Uh, actually, no, Charles Harder said this to me. They were like, find the sex tape. Like, try to watch the Hulk Hogan sex tape. You cannot find it on the internet. Like it just doesn't exist. And they were like, at the smallest level, that's an unprecedented victory. Like we we made something that so how do you think that happened? Well, just because no one wants to be the idiot that puts up mm. that. But a tape far again. a foreign site like for you know, or a site like 4chan or something could easily easily put it up. So so but but their their point was like we made Gawker was singularly bad, right? So yes, some of these people are elsewhere, and yes, they sometimes do unethical things, but no website is is running something like the Hulk Hogan sex tape again. I mean, I I have so many questions, and some of them are about your process, some of them about you, uh, but like then there's just like random questions that I feel. Hit me. I I uh, I feel the book. I wanted to know more. Okay. So this is just on the financial side of me. 
Nick Gawker was not really based in the U.S., right? It right. was based, he had all these like sub-companies in Hungary or wherever. He sent all his profits to Hungary, yeah. And and he himself was pulling, he owned most of the company, so he probably pulled most of the profits out of the company and put it in his pocket and stashed it away in Europe anyway. Yeah. Was he really ever in, in trouble financially? Like you say, he had the more Airbnb his place, but I don't quite believe it. I, I don't... And, I don't, and also the company itself, yeah, they didn't have $100 million in cash to, to post bond or whatever, but... They certainly were hidden in foreign countries. Yeah, I don't. I don't think he was like having trouble coming up with money for food. Like he wasn't scrounging in his couch cushions, but he certainly felt the pressure and the pinch, right? Because also he's having to pay these legal bills out of his own pocket. Out of his own pocket? Yeah. What about Gawker's pocket? I mean, but that's his pocket, right? So uh, you're a company. You have fifty million dollars a year in revenue. You can't afford to spend. Five million dollars a year in legal bills. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, that those are your those are the profits he was planning on sending overseas, right? So he felt the squeeze there, definitely. So, so my guess is with him is that optically his U.S. money yes. probably ran really low, and so he had to file for bankruptcy here in the U.S. and have difficulties. And ultimately, with real there was a settlement, here. and he was able to walk away with some even U.S. money, like from the proceeds of the bankruptcy. Million according to the sale. Yeah, and, and so and and look, that was also Teal's intention, right? Teal was like, "I wasn't trying to ruin you personally. I was trying to make you not be able to do this anymore." Do you think they could be friends? Friends is probably way too strong of a word, but I. They didn't meet each other twice after it happened. How, and this is an odd question, but how, you've seen him now in many situations. You've been to dinner with him in groups and, yeah. and, and individually. How is Peter Thiel with his friends? Because he's always presented, portrayed in the media as, um, you know, a little bit offbeat. He's a little bit offbeat. I mean, he's more relaxed. He's more casual. He's friendly and, and loose. But at the same time, and, and maybe I relate to this a little, it's like he would rather be talking about chess moves or oil futures or, you know, the collapse of college education. You know what I mean? Like he would, his, I think his favorite thing to do would be to have a six hour dinner conversation. And are you aware of any, you don't have to say what they are, but yeah. are you aware of any other secretive long-term missions he's on? I'm not, I'm not. But that was, you know, I end the book sort of, he's standing out on his, almost like Gatsby on the on the pier, you right, know, looking at the at light. The dinner. And he's just thinking, and I, I was just like, I wonder what he's planning. And, and, for you again, well, first before before we uh, before we get into some concluding questions, I do want to highly recommend the book. Oh, it's you. Conspiracy by Ryan Holiday. It was a page turner. It was really really interesting. And your all your sub stories it reminded me of Robert Greene's works. Like I'm very uh, proud of it. I'm I I it I'm if it sells zero copies, I'm still really proud of it. No, I think it's a great educational book about this time in history and and the role of the internet and the and you know what it means also to not only about conspiracies but what it means to be a billionaire and those kind of resources like like actually this is a dumb question but uh what's a billionaire you know i've interviewed 16 billionaires on this podcast wow. right like but but you never get the sense that their lives are that different you know they maybe they buy a basketball team yeah. but and they have a bigger apartment and they fly a private jet but what did you, if someone's been a billionaire for 20 years, they're no yeah. longer relating to the common man in some way. So what's I do think a about billionaire that a lot. like? Like it's like, even if you're a billionaire, like they still eat in the same restaurants as you and I. Like they don't, they don't. Not really eat. though. No, no, but like, yeah, sometimes they have private chefs, but like, let's say they were like, let's get dinner. They're like going to a restaurant that you could get a reservation at, right? Like they're not like eating at McDonald's. 
but right. they're like their lives are still somewhat normal in, in that like it's like being a billionaire still makes you a person with feelings and you get frustrated and pissed off about things and peter thiel's anger about gawker is the same anger you felt about being slighted by the press he just has the resources to do something about it what i i was fascinated talking with him like his it seems like he just has a very strange conception of time right like because everything is revolves around him at all. Like everyone works for him, he can do for whatever. Many he wants. many years. That's got to yeah. alter the way you're. You're you're so far alpha in yeah. the hierarchy that it's got to alter your chemistry a little bit. Not in a bad way. I'm not saying making a judgment. Yeah, it's like, just I'm curious what the differences are. Yeah, like I remember I flew out for a day trip. It was like I flew out in the morning and I was flying out in the afternoon to interview him. And it was like we had an appointment at like ten. And I think we started at like one thirty. So, so like so, I just sat there for two and a half hours, and I don't it, like if I did that to someone, I'd run. I'd be like mortified and be a huge deal. And he was like, "Hey, you know, like so, probably because he was he could have been sitting in his chair thinking for two and a half hours. That wouldn't have surprised me." So, so this is related. Like maybe, I'll, maybe I'll ask this question more concisely, and that and your yeah. answer there is more, more. If if you didn't see any, if you met somebody and you couldn't tell from any material decisions they were making, yeah. like oh. I'm gonna buy a jet, or I'm gonna fly to yeah. Hawaii for the week. If you couldn't see any material evidence that they were billionaires, what personality things could you see? And you could say that person's a billionaire, not I mean, just a hundred yeah, billionaire, yeah. by no, the way, but a billionaire. Yeah, you see it with like really good, really big, famous musicians or really truly famous people. There's just this sort of casual confidence, like it. It's like if you walked into a, a like a dojo and there was a black belt. That's how they're carrying themselves compared to everyone else who's like a white belt. But I feel like I could, like you I can always feel it. Yeah, I but I always feel like for myself, I tend to act more confidently in public and with people than I am internally. So yeah, I feel like sure. that's a, that's a feeling you could cultivate inside yourself. But I think you just sort of internalize the power that mm-hmm. you have, and they they you you just sense that power. Not that they're not awkward and they're not. Still human, but there is just a certain power. I remember this weird, like on the the, the meeting that I describe at the end. Uh, you know, he he would like the dinner went until like eleven, and then he was like, "Okay, I'm I'm going." And I was like, "Where are you going?" And he's like, oh, "I'm flying back to San Francisco tonight. I have like a breakfast meeting in the morning." And I just I was like, "If I was a billionaire, I don't think I would ever willingly fly a red eye flight." Like he he's leaving his he flew in that day for a dinner at his mansion in the Hollywood Hills and then was flying to San Francisco for a breakfast meeting and was going to be exhausted because he was, he would land at what like two in the morning you know like it seemed grueling but that's just how he like that was the pace so, that he sets for so, himself. So the personality aspect there is, but again, ceaseless. I, you don't stop. It, you don't there's stop. never enough because also you've created the world around you, so there's no reason to stop. <laughs> Right, it's it's not as unpleasurable as you would think it would be. Maybe like or, you're yeah. not doing those meetings for other people. Yeah, right. Um, is there anything else? Like just again, there you describe something that was somewhat material. Yeah, that's like, true. Like what's the psychological? Like the 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 having you wait for three and a half hours and then not being mortified by right. it. Again, no judgment against right. him. That was just like a normal daily thing. Well, and maybe this actually explains the conspiracy itself, which is that I think you. Increasingly, you you become you you come to think that whatever opinion you have is like what's best for the world. Like so, I say like things happen to us, and we have opinions like normal people, uh, and then, but we don't do anything about it 
because we don't like like I think Peter Peter like so Peter was hurt by Gawker and he felt like it was wrong and it shouldn't exist and then he felt that because he felt that way he should change the entire world to fit more closely in that image. Does mm. that make sense? Yeah. Like the he he felt like he should exert his will on the world and of course that will was correct. And you and you see this in other aspects of let's say his life or Elon Musk's life or Jeff Bezos's life or Bill Gates' life. Of course life. I should build a tunnel under Los Angeles. It would right. help avoid traffic. And like there's a whimsy but also a, a sort of a will to power there that is fascinating. Right, because they can do it because they can at least figure out What's the next step? Yeah, there's no obstacle for them that is the next. That there's no next step that they can't do. Right, and there's no. I mean, to go to your theme, this idea of choosing yourself. It's like they've so thoroughly chosen themselves that they believe that they are chosen, and that like, there's a line I just wrote an article about this for TechCrunch. But the, Cornelius Vanderbilt, he got in trouble for something, and and you know, the Gilded Age, and he, and he, and they were like, "Why did you do this?" And he said, "I have the money, ain't I? Got the power? Basically, like, I want to do it. Of course." Like, shouldn't I be allowed to do it? And I think we're going to see more of that. Like the idea that Mark Zuckerberg has amassed the largest network of humans ever, and then is just going to like let it go and not going to take it in the direction that he wants to take it, or that Peter Thiel is going to amass this power and this money and then not do something about Gawker if he thinks it should be done or whatever. Like the idea that these people have accumulated all this power and influence and access, and they're not going to remake the world in their image, strikes me as incredibly naive if only from a historical standpoint like people do not accumulate power and then sit on it that just doesn't happen so so i want to i want to um wrap this up first again recommending conspiracy by Ryan Holiday your first kind of narrative fiction a narrative nonfiction story second i do want to recommend because one of the i don't, i only like to read books i don't read okay. news yeah. i don't read yeah. emails really um Two emails I read every day of kind of newsletter style emails. I read your Daily Stoic. I read it every day. As Thank soon you. as I get it, I read it. And and then I guess the once a week one or once every few days. I don't even know how often he puts out by Eric Barker. I read that one. That's every Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. And, his is great. But yours I really look forward to and it kind of helps my life. Like it makes it better. I read so, I'll add I do you read Matt Levine's email? No. For I don't. Bloomberg. It's financial, so maybe you wouldn't like it. But he, I don't he like. Has, uh, I don't like financial. <laughs> his my favorite. He, he writes for Bloomberg, and it's like really contrarian, interesting stuff. I like him a lot. Yeah, and and I will recommend all your Stoic stuff. Like well, ego you. is the ego is the enemy, obstacles the way is all great stuff. Daily Stoic, which is related to your email. Sure. So, um, and then final question. Okay. What again? What surprised you in this story? That was this incredibly effective technique used on either side. What surprised you how, about how effective it was? Uh, so, like one of the pivotal moments is that they, in the jury consulting, they realize that uh, overweight women are the most sympathetic to their sort of case. That uh, overweight women have been cyberbullied. That they're really sensitive to body images. They don't want people posting random things about them on the internet. And so, like they they figure this out and it's kind of it's i mean it's gross right it's gross to think like hey we're going to pick jurors based on this superficial understanding of them and then exploit our but, their perceived body issues but i feel like that's okay i feel like that's an effective technique and that's probably a a, a fact that you learned but it doesn't sh- strike me as surprising that a lawyer would statistically profile what their ideal juror was 
Yes. So, so I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you another chance to come up okay. with an effective. But technique. no, I, what, what I'm saying is that when he set out to destroy Gawker for being this bully, I don't think he would have predicted that he would right. have found himself there. But when he was there, he did what he. he that's where the Ruth. That's where the tearing your heart out comes in. You and have the to, competence. Yes. Yeah. And, and so I think that was that was a, a, a very interesting part. What's another element? A lesson. Um, I, I think interesting for me was okay. how Nick Denton. It go moves forward and yes. reinvents okay. his life and seems to be actually happier. In some ways, yes. I said to Nick, I was like, aren't you bitter? Like, I feel like I would be horribly bitter. Uh, someone did this to me, whether I was partly in the wrong or not, whether I believed I was in the wrong or not. Um, how did you just walk away? And he, he just, he was like, I spent a lot of time thinking about how much worse it could have been, mm. uh, that it could have dragged on longer, that I could have lost everything. Uh, you know that other people could have been hurt. That I couldn't have sold the other sites and you know secured employment for the the the, the rest of the writers, you know. And that's a very stoic exercise: is just find something to be gratif- grateful for, even amidst you know complete personal catastrophe. Okay. And, and there was some. There's what I said is like there's character in losing, and there's rarely that much character in like destroying someone. And again, in terms of the effectiveness. Was there any extra thing that Mr. A or Peter Thiel did that surprised you? It was like, ah, okay, in my own endeavors in life, I'm going to try to be effective in this way. Well, so it wasn't just that they were secret. It's that they then also did all these other things, whether it was with Gamergate or they filed all these other lawsuits. Oh my God, or, I totally wanted to ask you about Gamergate too, but so, that'll be another conversation. So, but but like, so on the one hand, they were being secret about their intentions. And then on the other hand, they sort of waged this campaign of disinformation and chaos and confusion that like utterly distracted Gawker and made it so they they didn't guess the secret. And I feel like that's straight out of like one of Robert Greene's books. Yeah, or Sun Tzu. You know, he says yeah. all warfare is based on you know deception. So like deception is different than secrecy. Secrecy is just not telling someone what you're doing, but deception is lying about it and and confusing them. And and that's that's what they did. And I think that's partly why they won. And what's your next book? I'm sure you're working on something. It's a secret. <laughs> really? Yeah. You're totally not gonna. I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna talk the about fuck? it until, until I have until I have some <laughs> some, uh, some headway. All right. Well, Ryan Holiday, once again on the podcast, such a pleasure. Uh, conspiracy, page turner, really like a thriller. And uh, thanks for coming on again the podcast, like your fifteenth time on the podcast. <laughs> Thank you for having me. You've been very generous. Next time on the James Altucher Show, you graduate with this economics degree. You go from strip club DJ to Uber driver to stand-up comedy. What gave you the kind of ability to say, nope, I'm not going to do what my parents want me to do? I think it's fear and desperation. What were you afraid of? I mean, just picturing myself sitting behind a desk until I was 65. A lot of people say, okay, I'll do this for a few years while I pursue another dream. Right. You didn't do that. I just, I couldn't. I couldn't. After two months at this internship, I literally want to kill myself. I can't do it. Physically, it was impossible. What veered you into comedy look it it takes a lot of desperation especially for me who never really grew up with stand-up i wasn't like oh i saw eddie murphy on stage i need to do stand-up at some point it wasn't that it was just like well fuck what am i doing with my life nothing so googling local open mics is the last step before you google what's the best way to kill myself so i did that i google local open mics i wasn't that funny but i think i found a community pretty immediately of comedians who are bumbling around just like me 
there was a sense of purpose there. You know, if you get good at this, there might be a future at something. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.